Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 97, Badges and Bill. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute at goldengatefiberinstitute.org. For previous episodes of Little Women, please visit craftlet.blogspot.com or iTunes and begin with episode 90. Today, Chapter 12. Well, hello. I, um... I am frantic, but I am really glad to be podcasting because this, this part of my life makes sense. This part of my life works pretty darn well. Everything else this week has just exploded. Um, but before we go there, I'm going to explain the title of this week's podcast because it's weird. This week, the chapter that we're reading in Little Women is called Camp Lawrence. And I have been thinking all week about what to call the silly episode. Because every time I think of camp, I think of either Brenda Dane's badges from her craft lit series on camp, which was, uh, which was last summer, actually. Or I think of Bill Murray and Meatballs. And so far for the last two days, the counselor in training CIT song from Meatballs has been going through my mind nonstop, which may have contributed a little bit to the week, but at least it kept me laughing in the middle of drama. First, you may remember that last week I told you we got a dog, Rosie, Rosie the Wonder Dog, Rosie the Wonder Dog who went on Rosie's incredible journey, not even 24 hours not even 12 hours after the last podcast uploaded, I woke up and got out of bed and Andrew had been uh, taking care of the boys so I could actually get eight hours of sleep, which I need. And um, I bleary-eyed my way into the kitchen and he said, Rosie's gone. I said, what do, you, what do you mean Rosie's gone? Rosie dug her way out of the backyard and ran away. He'd been out already for an hour driving around looking for her. I threw on clothes and went out into the wash looking for her, braving mountain lions, bobcats, rattlesnakes, all those crazy things on the way. Um, Not that I actually, you know, saw any of those things, but in my imagination, I was braving mountain lions and bobcats and rattlesnakes because we have seen those. I just didn't see them that day. So walking through the wash, back and forth, calling her, whistling for her, nothing. You know, every once in a while, my ear played tricks on me, and I thought I heard her dog tags whistle or clink, but no. So we're all depressed. So depressed that we don't cancel the babysitter. We actually go out that night and saw Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which was fine. It wasn't Raiders, but honestly, what could be? Raiders was new. Raiders had never been done the way Raiders was done. So, you know, it's it's hard to measure up to those kinds of expectations. It was wonderful to see Karen Allen. Um, it made me want to email her again and say, okay, now that the press junkets are done, now do you want to talk to the Craftlet people? 
Um, because as you may recall, she is a knitwear designer and yoga instructor up in the Berkshires, I think. And, um, and, and who could blame her for going and doing those things? She looks great. It was wonderful to see her again because I loved her in Raiders. So we saw Indiana Jones. That was great. We came home. That was great. We woke up the next morning. I went and ran some errands. We had to do some um, emergency fix-it work on the drip irrigation system here in our backyard that seemed to have exploded all over the course of, well, the time that I was on the cruise. I get back from Walmart and my husband says, you didn't answer me. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, I left you messages. And I said, I left my cell phone. (laughs) It was sitting in the bathroom. They found Rosie. Rosie ran somewhere between 17 and 25 miles. We're not sure exactly how she tracked it, but she did. Back to not her original home, but the home of the people who rescued her and took her to the Humane Society. Her original owners just stopped taking care of her, and I think it probably was mostly financial. Um, And she started hanging out at a neighbor's house where there were two doggies, who she's very good friends with. And she clearly ran back there, not because she was hungry, but because she wanted to play with her dog friends. And so, you know, prior to her running away, I'd been thinking, you know, she looks a little sad. And I think she really is kind of depressed. And she's not trying to run away anymore, but she's also not, you know, she has moments of great bounciness and happiness and frolickiness. But I don't know. Moms, you know when your kids are sad about something, even if they're not saying anything. Do you do this with your animals too? I mean, there are times when I look at the skink and say, man, the skink needs to get out and play with the boys. He's looking depressed. I don't know. It's just, it's a thing. It's a thing. I don't know if it's real or not, but I certainly sensed that she was unhappy. And my my um, husband's cousin is here with us. He is very much the dog aficionado and said that he, he thinks she's probably still in shock. That um, the, the switch from rescue home to humane shelter for, or humane society shelter for two weeks to us is a lot of change in a young dog's life. And she's probably going to be a little off for a while, which made me feel a lot better because then I thought, well, it's nothing that we're doing. It's just, she needs time to adjust. So we had Rosie's incredible journey. We have, you know, the obvious post-cruise malaise. I miss my friends. I miss getting to see everyone at breakfast. I miss, oh, for the love of God, I miss having somebody cook for me like that. And, um, and I, I also, you know, I, I managed to get to a point last week where I felt like I had everything under control. And then this week, Tuesday, I thought was Andrew's last day here. And then he was going to go on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday trip. I'm in the middle of a meeting Tuesday and I get a text message from him saying, I'm getting on the plane now. I misread the ticket. I managed to get myself on a slightly lighter flight. Um, Rosie's home and I walked her. And so he just took off. So from that moment on, the whole week was just kind of, it felt like it got shot out of a shotgun, scattershot. I never really managed to accomplish anything. I tried to get to bed before midnight every night. That didn't work. I tried to get, you know, to at least sleep until 6.15 or something like that. That didn't work because either a child or a dog woke me up at 5. I'm just whining, aren't I? I need to just stop this. Either way, it's been one of those really frantic, hectic weeks where, you know, you feel like you're always running to try and get ahead of the ball that's rolling behind you and trying to kill you. 
a la Indiana Jones, keeping with that theme, and it just never quite works. That has been my week. It was looking like a great week. We got Rosie back on Sunday. Everything seemed wonderful. And then not so much. But, but, I do have some thank yous. Aaron, Spinner Aaron, from our podcast sent me a book while I was on the cruise, this fabulous old history of knitting book that I'm kind of slowly pacing my way through. It's really wonderful. So a thank you, a belated, much belated thank you to Aaron for that. And also an incredibly belated thank you to Judith, who sent me the coolest book in the world, Joseph Campbell's Skeleton Key to Finnegan's Wake. I am so excited. My husband has never even read Finnegan's Wake. And so we are going to read Finnegan's Wake and the Skeleton Key out loud to each other. How cool is that? Or let me rephrase that. How geeky is that? (laughs) Because let's be honest, who's going to do that for a romantic evening at home except us? (sighs) You know, the other thing that was really weird about this week is it seems like a ton of people died. Sidney Pollack died. Harvey Korman died. Um, the guy who composed the theme songs to pretty much every show on TV that you've ever liked. Um, and then Malabrigo had a fire. And as far as their website says, they still don't know what damage has been done to their yarn supply, which I think means maybe go buy a bunch before people start charging a fortune for it on eBay. Because it's great yarn and it's not going to be showing up anytime soon in any store. They just don't have any inventory to ship because it's either water damaged, smoke damaged, or burnt. So, just like that. Um, I am going to share something with you tonight that it never occurred to me to do this before, but tonight while the kids were having dinner, I was taking the old rotten bananas that, um, they didn't get through. Usually they eat bananas like people drink water, but for some reason this week they switched to apples. So I was unprepared for the apple onslaught and the banana, um, defraying the banana glut. And, uh, and so I made banana bread. My great grandmother's banana bread recipe is like unto manna from heaven. It is probably, well, her lemon meringue pie was really butt-kickingly good as well, but I've never been able to make it exactly right. Just like she did something, something, I don't know what, to the Nestle Toll House cookie recipe, and her cookies were so much better than anyone else's. And she said, oh, I just use half the chocolate chips. That's not true. There was something else she did, and I have spent much of the last 30 years trying different things with the recipe to see if I can figure out what it was that she did. That I haven't accomplished, but I am going to share her banana bread recipe with her because I'm feeling like maybe karmically this will make up for something that I did this week because <laughs> clearly the universe is just kicking my butt, but also because I've been reading the Ravelry page for the Craftlet listeners and all the new people who are, who are signing on and you know they're back with Pride and Prejudice or they listened to one episode and they went back to Pride and Prejudice. We just have the most amazing, wonderful, generous, sweet people who listen to this podcast. And I wanted to give something back to you. And so it's going to be the banana bread recipe. So if you haven't already gotten a piece of paper and a pencil, get a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen. And, you know, I'll wait for you. Okay, now that you're back with something to write with and something to write on, 
you start by, and I do mine in a standalone, you know, a stand-up mixer, one of the the ones where you kind of click the button and walk away and it, it mixes for you. That was uh, an anniversary present from many years ago, and oh, dear Lord, how I love that machine. Um, but if you go by the real instructions, the real instructions tell you to do this all by hand with a wooden spoon. So, you know, do what you will. You take a stick of butter, half cup, and you let it soften a little bit. You still want it a little firm. And you mix in anywhere from a half cup of sugar to a whole cup of sugar. It depends on your taste. And I'll tell you, three quarters of a cup is all that I've ever needed. If you have a particularly strong sweet tooth, you'll want to do more. If you would rather have a more banana-y taste and less of a sugary taste, then go down to half a cup. You can also use that half sugar, half Splenda mix that's out there in the world now. And uh, and I'll tell you, it really doesn't alter the taste of the bread at all. It's um, a little bit better for you and really tastes good. So you take the, the sugar and the butter and you cream those up until they're nice and soft and beaten together. And you add one egg and beat that uh, until it's all smooth and nice. And then you add two teaspoons of sweet milk. Now, that's what it says on my grandmother's uh, recipe card. I have memorized the recipe card. I'm, I'm actually doing this from memory because for, you know, 35 years I've been doing this. Um, she said sweet milk, which basically meant A, milk that hadn't turned sour, or B, milk that still has the cream in it. It doesn't really matter as long as you could use skim milk, as long as it hasn't turned, um, which also means cold. Try and do it when it's cold. It actually does make a difference. Um, mix two tablespoons of milk with a half teaspoon of baking soda. Why you're supposed to mix these things together is a mystery to me, but it does seem to work better. So I'm sure there's some kind of chemical property that's happening here and I didn't take chemistry. So what do I know? Add the milk baking soda mixture to the batter. Peel a banana preferably an overripe one, one that you wouldn't want to eat. Um, sometimes what we do is we take the overripe ones if I don't have time to make banana bread and we stick them in a baggie in the freezer and freeze them. And then I defrost them just enough to be able to get them into the batter later. Even if they're partially frozen, it doesn't matter. It still works. Uh, you take a banana. If you've only done a half cup of sugar, I would do two bananas just to keep it sweet. Uh, banana in half, banana, it's really very, very flexible. I wouldn't go with three bananas. That's where I draw my line. And I wouldn't go with just half a banana. I'd draw a line there too. Anywhere from one to two. Toss the banana in, mix that puppy up. Now you have a very um, thick and rather gooey batter. And then you add a, I don't know, an eighth of a teaspoon, a small amount, but definitely an amount of salt a whole teaspoon, not a tablespoon, teaspoon of baking powder and two cups of flour. I have done all whole wheat, which kind of works, a half and half white all-purpose flour and um, whole wheat flour, and then I've done just regular all-purpose flour. Bread flour for some reason doesn't seem to work very well, and self-rising flour is a no-no. Um, stick that into a loaf pan or into a set of cupcake pans with the little cupcake thingies. 35 minutes in the oven at 350 for cupcakes, hour in the oven for a loaf of bread, and right around 25 minutes, the most amazing smell is going to permeate your home, 
and you are going to probably fall on your knees and thank me for giving you this recipe. And I will hear you from far, far away because my ears will burn. It really is such a great recipe. Ah, I love it. And I am not going to put it on the show notes because I don't want everybody else to have it. I only want you, just you, to have this recipe. So that's my great grandma Ruth's recipe. She was pretty amazing. She was actually, oh, I can't even remember when she was born, 18 something. And uh, she was a Latin scholar. She taught Latin at the local community college. This is my, my little old lady grandmother. You know, I only knew her as a very, very diminutive, very, very, very tiny and delicate looking woman. But I learned later that she was tough as nails. And she never, she never said anything bad to anyone, like, you know, you're driving me crazy, or cut it out, or I'm going to bite your head off. But what she did do is she scrubbed the kitchen floor. Evidently, one time, she was on her hands and knees, scrubbing the kitchen floor three times in one day. No one ever found out what it was that pissed her off. Go figure. I am so not that strong. Clearly, because I've been whining at you all this time. <sighs> but that's the banana bread recipe. And on that happy, happy note, I am going to move on to chapter 12 of Little Women, because it's a long chapter. It's, um, at first glance, when I, when I first started thinking, oh, you know, we're going to do this chapter, blah, 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 I thought, yeah, it's not my favorite chapter. And then I've been thinking about it more, and I've thought, no, actually, it's really a pivotal chapter. There are some people you meet who symbolize some very important themes that run through Little Women. As I already said, this chapter is called Camp Lawrence, and um, it's, it's where a couple of different things happen. You start to notice what's happening between Meg and Mr. Brooke, and that's very sweet, and you do need to pay attention to that. And then Lori has some friends coming into town, and they mix with some of the um, local kind of slightly better off, more well-to-do people from uh, the March family's town. And they all get together and kind of do this, this um, they call it Camp Lawrence, but it's, it's kind of just, a, you know, a day out. Um, what was the Wallace and Gromit's episode? Uh, a grand day out. Um, similar to that. But there are a couple people you need to pay attention to. Fred Vaughn who is one of the British people, pay close attention to him and his um, personality flaws. Also pay attention to how all of the girls in their own instances react to the infestation of outsiders to their little world. Um, their interplay is, is rather interesting and it's not all of it is subtle, but a lot of it, a lot of it is. But one of the things that Alcott is doing here is really kind of pushing the um, the pro-American stance in many ways. She's setting up Americans against um, some Brits. So apologies to all my UK listeners, but um, what had happened in the United States prior to this, going back quite a ways actually, with Washington Irving, and we talked about this a little during Sleepy Hollow ages ago, Washington Irving was the first American novelist to actually be able to make a living writing books. Prior to him, every piece of literature that sold well was European. 
And the understanding, that's just kind of implicit understanding in the arts world in the States was that anything good was coming from Europe. Well, Irving kind of drove a wedge into that and started to pry open American consciousness to art from its own land. And this is kind of the um, post-Twain, well, during Twain. Twain's doing it, um, Alcott's doing it, Thoreau, all the transcendentalists, uh, Herman Melville, Nathaniel Hawthorne, all of these people are really starting to carve out um, during the, the 1800s important American territory in literature. Similar things were happening in um, more traditional arts and painting and, and um, design and uh, furniture and sculpture, but obviously we're kind of paying attention to the literature aspect. You're, you're seeing the Americans being portrayed as hardy, as honest, and as hardworking people. And this is, I think, particularly important. They, they want what they deserve, but they understand that they only deserve something if they have worked hard for it. You've, you've seen characters pop up over and over again in books and movies who you know, say, I don't want any charity, or we don't take any charity. Well, it's, it's that, but it's more than that. It's that I work hard for the small house that I have and by God I love the small house that I have and it's just perfect for me so I don't need any titles I don't need a mansion I don't need a hot chocolate pot when you know the Joneses just got a hot chocolate pot I'm very happy with my ceramic teapot very, very much a kind of a, a militantly pro-American attitude. And you'll, you'll see and hear strains of that running through this chapter. Not just because there are uh, Brits who are in this chapter, but because when you compare the March girls and their wealthier American counterparts who seem to put on airs and they wear fashions that are more European than American and they're um, sensibility and their mannerisms seem to be more European than American. That's also a moment where Alcott's trying to point out, no, 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 no. See, we're different. And we're different because we're here. And we're here because of, not that she said it, but quite honestly, because of the genetic makeup of anyone insane enough to go across the Atlantic Ocean to a new world with, you know, not much more than the clothes on their back. I mean, I, I didn't really get that until my husband pointed out, and I think I may have said this on the podcast before, as we're driving back and forth across the country, he mentions how insane my family must have been to have done the covered wagon thing from New Jersey to California back in the 18, oh God, I don't know, 1820s, 1830s. It was a long time ago that my family made the trek. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, they were, I mean, I am a restless person. And my mother is a restless person. And to some extent, all of us are restless people in my family. And I just had always assumed that that was kind of the westward flow that the people in my family have historically been restless and wanted to move and discover and see and learn and grow. And he said, no, I'm not talking about that kind of uh, attitude. That makes a lot of sense to me. I'm talking about the insanity of making it to Denver and looking at the Rockies and saying, yeah, let's keep going. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, that that would be a little odd, wouldn't it? I don't know if they went along the Oregon Trail. I know that they wound up in Utah living with Brigham Young for a while because their youngest daughter got scarlet fever. 
So one branch of my family, that's what happened to them. And then they went all the way into San Bernardino, and she got sick again, and she said, I'm not moving again. And so they stayed in San Bernardino and Riverside in California. And that's where the Swing Auditorium came from. If you're in River, uh, Riverside, Redlands, or San Bernardino, you know of the Swing Auditorium. Them's my ancestors. So I think the, the people, especially in New England, who are descendants of people who came across circa Mayflower time, they had to be a little off their rocker and a little house proud about what they had built out of the dirt and rock of the New England countryside. And it's pretty understandable. And I think, you know, because they lived in struggle, a lot of the things that they created, um, they're, they're A, proud of, like I just said, and B, there was a lot of beauty in that struggle. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. I've noticed in theater, the best theater we ever did was the theater where we didn't have any money, where we had to really come up with creative solutions for how to do a special effect or a costume or a set piece on no budget at all. And typically at UCLA, and I've heard this from other people as well, the main stage shows at UCLA were always a bit of a disappointment because while they were technically gorgeous, you know, gorgeous sets, gorgeous costumes, gorgeous design, amazing lighting, special effects, people appeared out of holes in the ground. They were kind of hollow and soulless, and there was no ingenuity there. There was nothing that made you sit up and take notice. And I I always thought that perhaps that was because they just didn't have to work very hard, and it was too easy for them. And I think the comparisons that you'll see being made between um, the, the people in the March family and Lori and the other people in this chapter has a lot to do with that kind of hard-won, um, difficult life or life in a, a difficult climate and in a, a world that was pretty much devoid of luxury so that any luxury you managed to scrape out for yourself was a big deal. Um, oh! I needed to tell you, Susan in Scotland pointed out something very interesting about Charles Dickens, and then I'm going to let you get to the chapter. I'm sorry I forgot to tell you this before. She pointed out that, as Dickens always does, you know, he, he uses names creatively, and I missed two of them. And nobody else wrote me about this either, so if you were thinking it and didn't write me, shame on you. You should write me. You should write me, or you should leave me a phone message. The link is on the website craftlit.blogspot.com. Anyway, Susan in Scotland wrote that Mr. Laurie's name is perfect because he is a man of business. He is in many ways a beast of burden, traveling back and forth with messages or people. And that a lorry in England is, it's a pickup truck, basically. It's not, not really a Chevy S10, but it is, in fact, a truck. And I hadn't picked up on that. And also that Sidney Carton, she found a very interesting name because the implication is that he is an empty shell. He is a carton waiting to be filled, which he finally is at the end of the book, which I thought was really quite brilliant. And I wrote back to her and said, oh, I have to talk about what you just said on the next podcast. So I'm sorry that everything was so scattered this week. I'm very happy to be here with you and podcasting, though. I actually feel much, much calmer now and feel like I can go at you know, 9.15 at night, and go start working on the work that I have to turn in to FedEx on Monday morning. I think that's it. I'm going to leave you now with chapter 12 of Little Women 
Camp Lawrence. Beth was postmistress, for, being most at home, she could attend to it regularly, and dearly liked the daily task of unlocking the little door and distributing the mail. One July day she came in with her hands full and went about the house leaving letters and parcels like the penny post. "'Here's your posy, mother. Laurie never forgets that,' she said, putting the fresh nosegay in the vase that stood in Marmy's corner and was kept supplied by the affectionate boy. "'Miss Meg March, one letter and a glove,' continued Beth, delivering the articles to her sister, who sat near her mother, stitching wristbands. "'Why, I left a pair over there, and here is only one,' said Meg, looking at the gray cotton glove. "'Didn't you drop the other in the garden?' "'No, I'm sure I didn't, for there was only one in the office.' I hate to have odd gloves. Never mind. The other may be found. My letter is only a translation of the German song I wanted. I think Mr. Brooke did it, for this isn't Laurie's writing. Mrs. March glanced at Meg, who was looking very pretty in her gingham morning gown, with the little curls blowing about her forehead, and very womanly, as she sat sewing at her little work table, full of tidy white rolls, so unconscious of the thought in her mother's mind as she sewed and sang, while her fingers flew and her thoughts were busied with girlish fancies as innocent and fresh as the pansies in her belt, that Mrs. March smiled and was satisfied. Two letters for Dr. Joe, a book and a funny old hat, which covered the whole post office and stuck outside, said Beth, laughing as she went into the study where Joe sat writing. "'What a sly fellow Laurie is. I said I wished bigger hats were the fashion, because I burn my face every hot day,' he said. "'Why mind the fashion? Wear a big hat and be comfortable. I said I would if I had one, and he has sent me this to try me. I'll wear it for fun and show him I don't care for the fashion.' and hanging the antique broad brim on a bust plato, Joe read her letters. One from her mother made her cheeks glow and her eyes fill, for it said to her, My dear, I write a little word to tell you with how much satisfaction I watch your efforts to control your temper. You say nothing about your trials, failures, or successes, and think perhaps that no one sees them, but the friend whose help you daily ask, if I may trust the well-worn cover of your guidebook, I too have seen them all, and heartily believe in the sincerity of your resolution, since it begins to bear fruit. Go on, dear, patiently and bravely, and always believe that no one sympathizes more tenderly with you than your loving mother. That does me good. That's worth millions of money and pecks of praise. Oh, Marmy, I do try. I will keep on trying and not get tired, since I have you to help me. Laying her head on her arms, Joe wet her little romance with a few happy tears, for she had thought that no one saw and appreciated her efforts to be good, and this assurance was doubly precious, doubly encouraging, because unexpected and from the person whose commendation she most valued. Feeling stronger than ever to meet and subdue her Apollyon, she pinned the note inside her frock as a shield and a reminder 
lest she be taken unaware, and proceeded to open her other letter, quite ready for either good or bad news. In a big dashing hand, Laurie wrote, Dear Joe, what ho! Some English girls and boys are coming to see me tomorrow, and I want to have a jolly time. If it's fine, I'm going to pitch my tent in Long Meadow and row up the whole crew to lunch and croquet, have a fire, make messes, gypsy fashion, and all sorts of larks. They are nice people and like such things. Brooke will go to keep us boys steady, and Kate Vaughn will play propriety for the girls. I want you all to come. Can't let Beth off at any price, and nobody shall worry her. Don't bother about rations. I'll see to that and everything else. Only do come. There's a good fellow. In a tearing hurry, yours ever, Laurie. Here's richness, cried Joe, flying in to tell the news to Meg. Of course we can go, mother. It will be such a help to Laurie, for I can row, and Meg can see to the lunch, and the children be useful in some way. I hope the Vons are not fine grown-up people. Do you know anything about them, Joe? asked Meg. Only that there are four of them. Kate is older than you, Fred and Frank, twins, about my age, and a little girl, Grace, who is nine or ten. Laurie knew them abroad and liked the boys. I fancied, from the way he primmed up his mouth in speaking of her, that he didn't admire Kate much. I'm so glad my French print is clean. It's just the thing and so becoming, observed Meg complacently. Have you anything decent, Joe? Scarlet and gray boating suit good enough for me. I shall row and tramp about, so I don't want any starch to think of. You'll come, Betty. If you won't let any boys talk to me. Not a boy. I like to please Laurie, and I'm not afraid of Mr. Brooke. He is so kind. But I don't want to play or sing or say anything. I'll work hard and not trouble anyone, and you'll take care of me, Joe, so I'll go. That's my good girl. You do try to fight off your shyness, and I love you for it. Fighting faults isn't easy, as I know, and a cheery word kind of gives a lift. Thank you, Mother. And Joe gave the thin cheek a grateful kiss, more precious to Mrs. March than if it had given back the rosy roundness of her youth. I had a box of chocolate drops, and the picture I wanted to copy, said Amy, showing her mail and I got a note from Mr. Lawrence asking me to come over and play to him tonight, before the lamps are lighted, and I shall go, added Beth, whose friendship with the old gentleman prospered finely. Now let's fly round and do double duty today so that we can play tomorrow with free minds, said Joe, preparing to replace her pen with a broom. When the sun peeped into the girl's room early next morning to promise them a fine day, he saw a comical sight. Each had made such preparation for the fete as seemed necessary and proper. Meg had an extra row of little curl papers across her forehead. Joe had copiously anointed her afflicted face with cold cream. Beth had taken Joanna to bed with her to atone for the approaching separation. And Amy had capped the climax by putting a clothespin on her nose to uplift the offending feature. It was one of the kind artists used to hold the paper on their drawing boards, 
therefore quite appropriate and effective for the purpose it was now being put. This funny spectacle appeared to amuse the sun, for he burst out with such radiance that Joe woke up and roused her sisters by a hearty laugh at Amy's ornament. Sunshine and laughter were good omens for a pleasure party, and soon a lively bustle began in both houses. Beth, who was ready first, kept reporting what went on next door, and enlivened her sister's toilettes by frequent telegrams from the window. There goes the man with the tent. I see Mrs. Barker doing up the lunch in a hamper and a great basket. Now Mr. Lawrence is looking up at the sky and the weathercock. I wish he would go too. There's Laurie looking like a sailor, nice boy. Oh, mercy me. Here's a carriage full of people, a tall lady, a little girl, and two dreadful boys. One is lame, poor thing. He's got a crutch. Laurie didn't tell us that. Be quick, girls. It's getting late. Why, there is Ned Moffat, I do declare. Meg, isn't that the man who bowed to you one day while we were shopping? So it is. How queer that he should come. I thought he was at the mountains. There is Sally. I'm glad she got back in time. Am I all right, Joe? cried Meg in a flutter. A regular daisy. Hold up your dress and put your hat on straight. It looks sentimental tipped that way and will fly off at the first puff. Now then, come on. Oh, Joe, you are not going to wear that awful hat. It's too absurd. You shall not make a guy of yourself, remonstrated Meg, as Joe tied down with a red ribbon the broad-brimmed, old-fashioned leghorn Laurie had sent for a joke. I just will, though, for it's capital. So shady, light, and big. It will make fun, and I don't mind being a guy if I'm comfortable. With that, Joe marched straight away, and the rest followed a bright little band of sisters, all looking their best in summer suits, with happy faces under the jaunty hat-brims. Laurie ran to meet and present them to his friends in the most cordial manner. The lawn was the reception-room, and for several minutes a lively scene was enacted there. Meg was grateful to see that Miss Kate, though twenty, was dressed with a simplicity which American girls would do well to imitate and who was much flattered by Mr. Ned's assurances that he came especially to see her. Joe understood why Laurie primmed up his mouth when speaking of Kate, for that young lady had a stand-off-don't-touch-me air which contrasted strongly with the free and easy demeanor of the other girls. Beth took an observation of the new boys and decided that the lame one was not dreadful but gentle and feeble, and she would be kind to him on that account. Amy found Grace a well-mannered, merry little person, and after staring dumbly at one another for a few minutes, they suddenly became very good friends. Tents, lunch, and croquet utensils having been sent on beforehand, the party was soon embarked, and the two boats pushed off together, leaving Mr. Lawrence waving his hat on the shore. Laurie and Joe rode one boat, Mr. Brooke and Ned the other, while Fred Vaughn, the riotous twin, did his best to upset both by paddling about in a wherry like a disturbed water-bug. Joe's funny hat deserved a vote of thanks, for it was of general utility. 
It broke the ice in the beginning by producing a laugh. It created quite a refreshing breeze, flapping to and fro as she rode, and would make an excellent umbrella for the whole party if a shower came up, she said. Miss Kate decided that she was odd, but rather clever, and smiled upon her from afar. Meg, in the other boat, was delightfully situated face to face with the rowers, who both admired the prospect and feathered their oars with uncommon skill and dexterity. Mr. Brooke was a grave, silent young man, with handsome brown eyes and a pleasant voice. Meg liked his quiet manners, and considered him a walking encyclopedia of useful knowledge. He never talked to her much, but he looked at her a good deal, and she felt sure that he did not regard her with aversion. Ned, being in college, of course put on all the airs which freshmen think it their bounden duty to assume. He was not very wise, but very good-natured, and altogether an excellent person to carry on a picnic. Sally Gardner was absorbed in keeping her white-picked dress clean, and chattering with the ubiquitous Fred, who kept Beth in constant terror by his pranks. It was not far to Longmeadow, but the tent was pitched and the wickets down by the time they arrived. A pleasant green field with three wide-spreading oaks in the middle and a smooth strip of turf for croquet. "'Welcome to Camp Lawrence,' said the young host, as they landed with exclamations of delight. Brooke is commander-in-chief. I am commissary-general. The other fellows are staff officers. And you ladies are company. The tent is for your especial benefit, and that oak is your drawing-room. This is the mess-room, and the third is the camp kitchen. Now let's have a game before it gets hot, and then we'll see about dinner. Frank, Beth, Amy and Grace sat down to watch the game played by the other eight. Mr. Brooke chose Meg, Kate, and Fred. Laurie took Sally, Joe, and Ned. The English played well, but the Americans played better, and contested every inch of the ground as strongly as if the spirit of seventy-six inspired them. Joe and Fred had several skirmishes, and once narrowly escaped high words. Joe was through the last wicket, and had missed the stroke, which failure ruffled her a good deal. Fred was close behind her, and his turn came before hers. He gave a stroke, his ball hit the wicket, and stopped an inch on the wrong side. No one was very near, and running up to examine, he gave it a sly nudge with his toe, which put it just an inch on the right side. "'I'm through!' "'Now, Miss Joe, I'll settle you and get in first, cried the young gentleman, swinging his mallet for another blow. "'You pushed it. I saw you. It's my turn now,' said Joe sharply. "'Pon my word, I didn't move it. It rolled a bit, perhaps, but that is allowed. So stand off, please, and let me have a go at the stake. "'We don't cheat in America, but you can if you choose,' said Joe angrily. "'Yankees are a deal the most tricky everybody knows. "'There you go,' returned Fred, croqueting her ball far away. "'Joe opened her lips to say something rude, but checked herself in time, "'colored up to her forehead and stood a minute hammering down a wicket with all her might, "'while Fred hit the stake and declared himself out with much exultation. 
she went off to get her ball and was a long time finding it among the bushes but she came back looking cool and quiet and waited her turn patiently it took several strokes to regain the place she had lost and when she got there the other side had nearly won for kate's ball was the last but one and lay near the stake by george it's all up with us good-bye kate miss joe owes me one so you are finished cried fred excitedly as they all drew near to see the finish yankees have a trick of being generous to their enemies said joe with a look that made the lad redden especially when they beat them she added as leaving kate's ball untouched she won the game by a clever stroke lorry threw up his hat then remembered that it wouldn't do to exult over the defeat of his guests and stopped in the middle of the cheer to whisper to his friend good for you joe he did cheat i saw him we can't tell him so but he won't do it again take my word for it meg drew her aside under pretense of pinning up a loose braid and said approvingly it was dreadfully provoking but you kept your temper and i'm so glad joe don't praise me meg for i could box his ears this minute I should certainly have boiled over if I hadn't stayed among the nettles till I got my rage under control enough to hold my tongue. It's simmering now, so I hope he'll keep out of my way, returned Joe, biting her lips as she glowered at Fred from under her big hat. Time for lunch, said Mr. Brooke, looking at his watch. Commissary General, will you make the fire and get water, while Miss March, Miss Sally, and I spread the table? Who can make good coffee? Joe can, said Meg, glad to recommend her sister. So Joe, feeling that her late lessons in cookery were to do her honor, went to preside over the coffee pot, while the children collected dry sticks, and the boys made a fire and got water from a spring nearby. Miss Kate sketched, and Frank talked to Beth, who was making little mats of braided rushes to serve as plates. The commander-in-chief and his aides soon spread the tablecloth with an inviting array of eatables and drinkables, prettily decorated with green leaves. Joe announced that the coffee was ready, and everyone settled themselves to a hearty meal. For youth is seldom dyspeptic, and exercise develops wholesome appetites. A very merry lunch it was, for everything seemed fresh and funny, and frequent peals of laughter startled a venerable horse who fed nearby. There was a pleasing inequality in the table, which produced many mishaps to cups and plates, acorns dropped in the milk, little black ants partook of the refreshments without being invited, and fuzzy caterpillars swung down from the tree to see what was going on. Three white-headed children peeped over the fence, and an objectionable dog barked at them from the other side of the river with all his might and mane. There's salt here, said Lorry, as he handed Joe a saucer of berries. Thank you, I prefer spiders, she replied, fishing up two unwary little ones who had gone to a creamy death. How dare you remind me of that horrid dinner party, when yours is so nice in every way, added Joe, as they both laughed and ate out of one plate, the china having run short. I had an uncommonly good time that day, and haven't got over it yet. This is no credit to me, you know. I don't do anything. It's you and Meg and Brooke who make it all go, and I'm no end obliged to you. 
"'What shall we do when we can't eat any more?' asked Laurie, "'feeling that his trump card had been played when lunch was over. "'Have games till it's cooler. "'I brought authors, and I dare say Miss Kate knows something new and nice. "'Go and ask her. She's company, and you ought to stay with her more. "'Aren't you company, too? "'I thought she'd suit Brooke, but he keeps talking to Meg, "'and Kate just stares at them through that ridiculous glass of hers.' I'm going, so you needn't try to preach propriety, for you can't do it, Joe. Miss Kate did know several new games, and as the girls would not, and the boys could not eat any more, they all adjourned to the drawing-room to play rigmarole. One person begins a story, any nonsense you like, and tells as long as he pleases, only taking care to stop short at some exciting point, when the next one takes it up and does the same. It's very funny when well done, and makes a perfect jumble of tragical, comical stuff to laugh over. Please start it, Mr. Brooke, said Kate, with a commanding air which surprised Meg, who treated the tutor with as much respect as any other gentleman. Lying on the grass at the feet of the two young ladies, Mr. Brooke obediently began the story with the handsome brown eyes steadily fixed upon the sunshiny river. Once on a time, a knight went out into the world to seek his fortune, for he had nothing but his sword and his shield. He traveled a long while, nearly eight and twenty years, and had a hard time of it, till he came to the palace of a good old king who had offered a reward to anyone who could tame and train a fine but unbroken colt, of which he was very fond. The knight agreed to try, and got on slowly but surely, for the colt was a gallant fellow, and soon learned to love his new master, though he was freakish and wild. Every day when he gave his lessons to this pet of the king's, the knight rode him through the city, and as he rode, he looked everywhere for a certain beautiful face, which he had seen many times in his dreams, but never found. One day, as he went prancing down a quiet street, he saw at the window of a ruinous castle, the lovely face. He was delighted, inquired who lived in this old castle, and was told that several captive princesses were kept there by a spell, and spun all day to lay up money to buy their liberty. The knight wished intensely that he could free them, but he was poor, and could only go by each day watching for the sweet face and longing to see it out in the sunshine. At last he resolved to get into the castle and ask how he could help them. He went and knocked. The great door flew open and he beheld a ravishing lovely lady who exclaimed with a cry of rapture, At last, at last, continued Kate, who had read French novels and admired the style. Tis she, cried Count Gustave, and fell at her feet in an ecstasy of joy. Oh, rise, she said, extending a hand of marble fairness. Never, till you tell me how I may rescue you, swore the knight, still kneeling. Alas, my cruel fate condemns me to remain here till my tyrant is destroyed. Where is the villain? In the mauve salon. Go, brave heart, and save me from despair. I obey and return victorious or dead. With these thrilling words he rushed away and flinging open the door of the mauve salon, was about to enter when he received a stunning blow from the big Greek lexicon, 
which an old fellow in a black gown fired at him, said Ned. Instantly, Sir What's-His-Name recovered himself, pitched the tyrant out of the window, and turned to join the lady, victorious, but with a bump on his brow, found the door locked, tore up the curtains, made a rope ladder, got halfway down when the ladder broke, and he went head first into the moat sixty feet below, could swim like a duck, paddled round the castle till he came to a little door guarded by two stout fellows, knocked their heads together till they cracked like a couple of nuts, then by a trifling exertion of his prodigious strength, he smashed in the door, went up a pair of stone steps covered with dust a foot thick, toads as big as your fist, and spiders that would frighten you into hysterics, Miss March. At the top of these steps he came plump upon a sight, which took his breath away and chilled his blood. A tall figure, all in white, with a veil over its face, and a lamp in its wasted hand went on Meg. It beckoned, gliding noiselessly before him, down a corridor as dark and cold as any tomb. Shadowy effigies in armor stood on either side. A dead silence reigned. The lamp burned blue, and the ghostly figure ever and anon turned its face toward him, showing the glitter of awful eyes through its white veil. They reached a curtained door, behind which sounded lovely music. He sprang forward to enter, but the specter plucked him back, and waved threateningly before him a snuff-box, said Joe, in a sepulchral tone, which convulsed the audience. Thank ye, said the knight politely, as he took a pinch and sneezed seven times, so violently that his head fell off. Ha-ha, laughed the ghost, and having peeped through the keyhole at the princesses spinning away for dear life, the evil spirit picked up her victim and put him in a large tin box, where there were eleven other knights packed together without their heads, like sardines, who all rose and began to dance a hornpipe, cut in Fred, as Joe paused for breath. And as they danced, the rubbishy old castle turned to a man-of-war in full sail. Up with the jib, reef the tops, la Hallids. Helm hard a lee, and man the guns, roared the captain, as a Portuguese pirate hove in sight, with the flag black as ink flying from her foremast. Go in and win, my hearties, said the captain, and a tremendous fight began. Of course the British beat, they always do. No, they don't, cried Joe aside. Having taken the pirate captain prisoner, sailed slap over the schooner whose decks were piled high with dead, and whose lee scuppers ran blood, for the order had been cutlasses and die hard, Bosun's mate took up a bite of the flying jib-sheet, and start this villain if he doesn't confess his sins double-quick, said the British captain. The Portuguese held his tongue like a brick and walked the plank, while the jolly tars cheered like mad. But the sly dog dived, came up under the man-of-war, scuttled her, and down she went with all her sail set to the bottom of the C.C.C., where— Oh, gracious, what shall I say, cried Sally, as Fred ended his rigmarole, in which he had jumbled together pale-mell, nautical phrases and facts out of one of his favorite books. Well, they went to the bottom, and a nice mermaid welcomed them, but was much grieved on finding the box of headless knights, and kindly pickled them in brine, hoping to discover the mystery about them. 
for being a woman she was curious. By and by a diver came down, and the mermaid said, I'll give you a box of pearls if you can take it up, for she wanted to restore the poor things to life, and couldn't raise the heavy load herself. So the diver hoisted it up, and was much disappointed on opening it to find no pearls. He left it in a great lonely field, where it was found by a little goose girl, who kept a hundred fat geese in the field, said Amy, when Sally's invention gave out. The little girl was sorry for them, and asked an old woman what she should do to help them. Your geese will tell you, they know everything, said the old woman. So she asked what she should use for the new heads, since the old ones were lost, and all the geese opened their hundred mouths and screamed. Cabbages, continued Laurie promptly. Just the thing, said the girl, and ran to get twelve fine ones from her garden. She put them on, the knights revived at once, thanked her, and went on their way rejoicing, never knowing the difference, for there were so many other heads like them in the world that no one thought anything of it. The knight in whom I'm interested went back to find the pretty face, and learned that the princesses had spun themselves free, and all gone, and married but one. He was in a great state of mind at that, and mounting the colt, who stood by him through thick and thin, rushed to the castle to see which was left, Peeping over the hedge, he saw the queen of his affections picking flowers in her garden. "'Will you give me a rose?' said he. "'You must come and get it. I can't come to you. It isn't proper,' said she, as sweet as honey. He tried to climb over the hedge, but it seemed to grow higher and higher. Then he tried to push through, but it grew thicker and thicker, and he was in despair. So he patiently broke twig after twig till he had made a little hole through which he peeped, saying imploringly, Let me in! Let me in! But the pretty princess did not seem to understand, for she picked her roses quietly and left him to fight his way in. Whether he did or not, Frank will tell you. I can't. I'm not playing. I never do, said Frank, dismayed at the sentimental predicament out of which he was to rescue the absurd couple. Beth had disappeared behind Joe, and Grace was asleep. So the poor knight is to be left sticking in the hedge, is he? asked Mr. Brooke, still watching the river and playing with the wild rose in his buttonhole. I guess the princess gave him a posy, and opened the gate after a while, said Laurie, smiling to himself, as he threw acorns at his tutor. What a piece of nonsense we have made! With practice we might do something quite clever. Do you know truth? I hope so, said Meg soberly. The game, I mean. What is it? said Fred. Why, you pile up your hands, choose a number, and draw out in turn, and the person who draws at the number has to answer truly any question put by the rest. It's great fun. Let's try it, said Joe, who liked new experiments. Miss Kate and Mr. Brooke, Meg and Ned declined, but Fred, Sally, Joe, and Laurie piled and drew, and the lot fell to Laurie. Who are your heroes? asked Joe. Grandfather and Napoleon. Which lady here do you think prettiest? said Sally. Margaret. Which do you like best? from Fred. Joe, of course. What silly questions you ask. 
and Joe gave a disdainful shrug as the rest laughed at Laurie's matter-of-fact tone. "'Try again. Truth isn't a bad game,' said Fred. "'It's a very good one for you,' retorted Joe in a low voice. Her turn came next. "'What is your greatest fault?' asked Fred, by way of testing in her the virtue he lacked himself. "'A quick temper.' "'What do you most wish for?' said Laurie. "'A pair of boot-lacings,' returned Joe, guessing and defeating his purpose. "'Not a true answer. You must say what you really do want most.' "'Genius, don't you wish you could give it to me, Laurie?' "'And she slyly smiled in his disappointed face. "'What virtues do you most admire in a man?' asked Sally. "'Courage and honesty.' "'Now my turn,' said Fred, as his hand came last. "'Let's give it to him,' whispered Laurie to Joe, who nodded and asked at once, "'Didn't you cheat at croquet?' "'Well, yes, a little bit.' "'Good.' "'Didn't you take your story out of the sea lion?' said Laurie. "'Rather.' "'Don't you think the English nation perfect in every respect?' asked Sally. "'I should be ashamed of myself if I didn't.' "'He's a true John Bull. "'Now, Miss Sally, you shall have a chance without waiting to draw. "'I'll harrow up your feelings first by asking if you don't think "'you are something of a flirt,' said Laurie, "'as Joe nodded to Fred as a sign that peace was declared.' "'You impertinent boy! Of course I'm not!' exclaimed Sally, with an air that proved the contrary. "'What do you hate most?' asked Fred. "'Spiders and rice pudding.' "'What do you like best?' asked Joe. "'Dancing and French clubs. "'Well, I think truth is a very silly play. "'Let's have a sensible game of authors to refresh our mind,' proposed Joe. "'Ned, Frank, and the little girls joined in this.' And while it went on, the three elders sat apart, talking. Miss Kate took out her sketch again, and Margaret watched her, while Mr. Brooke lay on the grass with a book which he did not read. "'How beautifully you do it! I wish I could draw,' said Meg, with mingled admiration and regret in her voice. "'Why don't you learn? I should think you had taste and talent for it,' replied Miss Kate graciously. "'I haven't time.' Your mamma prefers other accomplishments, I fancy. So did mine, but I proved to her that I had talent by taking a few lessons privately, and then she was quite willing I should go on. Can't you do the same with your governess? I have none. I forgot. Young ladies in America go to school more than with us. Very fine schools they are, too, Papa says. You go to a private one, I suppose? I don't go at all. I am a governess myself. Oh, indeed, said Miss Kate. But she might as well have said, Dear me, how dreadful, for her tone implied it. And something in her face made Meg color and wish she had not been so frank. Mr. Brooke looked up and said quickly, Young ladies in America love independence as much as their ancestors did and are admired and respected for supporting themselves. Oh, yes, of course, it's very nice and proper in them to do so. We have many most respectable and worthy young women who do the same and are employed by the nobility, because being the daughters of gentlemen, they are both well-bred and accomplished, you know, said Miss Kate, in a patronizing tone that hurt Meg's pride and made her work seem not only more distasteful, but degrading. 
"'Did the German song suit, Miss March?' inquired Mr. Brooke, breaking an awkward pause. "'Oh, yes, it was very sweet, and I'm much obliged to whoever translated it for me.' And Meg's downcast face brightened as she spoke. "'Don't you read German?' asked Miss Kate, with a look of surprise. "'Not very well. My father who taught me is away, and I don't get on very fast alone, for I've no one to correct my pronunciation.' Try a little now. Here is Schiller's Mary Stuart, and a tutor who loves to teach. And Mr. Brooke laid his book on her lap with an inviting smile. It's so hard I'm afraid to try, said Meg, grateful, but bashful in the presence of the accomplished young lady beside her. I'll read a bit to encourage you. And Miss Kate read one of the most beautiful passages in a perfectly correct but perfectly expressionless manner. Mr. Brooke made no comment as she returned the book to Meg, who said innocently, I thought it was poetry. Some of it is. Try this passage. There was a queer smile about Mr. Brooke's mouth as he opened at poor Mary's lament. Meg, obediently following the long grass blade, which her new tutor used to point with, read slowly and timidly, unconsciously making poetry of the hard words by the soft intonation of her musical voice. Down the page went the green guide, and presently, forgetting her listener in the beauty of the sad scene, Meg read as if alone, giving a little touch of tragedy to the words of the unhappy queen. If she had seen the brown eyes then, she would have stopped short, but she never looked up, and the lesson was not spoiled for her. Very well indeed, said Mr. Brooke, as she paused, quite ignoring her many mistakes, and looking as if he did indeed love to teach. Miss Kate put up her glass, and having taken a survey of the little tableau before her, shut her sketchbook, saying with condescension, You've a nice accent, and in time will be a clever reader. I advise you to learn, for German is a valuable accomplishment to teachers. I must look after Grace, she is romping. And Miss Kate strolled away, adding to herself with a shrug, I didn't come to chaperone a governess, though she is young and pretty. What odd people these Yankees are. I'm afraid Laurie will be quite spoiled among them. I forgot that English people rather turn up their noses at governesses and don't treat them as we do, said Meg, looking after the retreating figures with an annoyed expression. Tudors also have a rather a hard time of it there, as I know to my sorrow. There's no place like America for us workers, Miss Margaret and Mr. Brooke looked so contented and cheerful that Meg was ashamed to lament her hard lot. I'm glad I live in it, then. I don't like my work, but I get a good deal of satisfaction out of it after all, so I won't complain. I only wished I liked teaching as you do. I think you would if you had Laurie for a pupil. I shall be very sorry to lose him next year, said Mr. Brooke, busily punching holes in the turf. "'Going to college, I suppose?' Meg's lips asked the question, but her eyes added, "'And what becomes of you?' "'Yes, it's high time he went, for he is ready, "'and as soon as he is off I shall turn soldier. "'I am needed.' "'I am so glad of that,' exclaimed Meg. "'I should think every young man would want to go, "'though it is hard for the mothers and sisters who stay at home,' "'she added sorrowfully. 
"'I have neither, and very few friends to care whether I live or die,' said Mr. Brooke, rather bitterly, as he absently put the dead rose in the hole he had made and covered it up, like a little grave. "'Laurie and his grandfather would care a great deal, and we should all be very sorry to have any harm happen to you,' said Meg heartily. "'Thank you, that sounds pleasant,' began Mr. Brooke, looking cheerful again. But before he could finish his speech, Ned, mounted on the old horse, came lumbering up to display his equestrian skill before the young ladies, and there was no more quiet that day. "'Don't you love to ride?' asked Grace of Amy, as they stood resting after a race around the field with the others, led by Ned. "'I dote upon it. My sister Meg used to ride when Papa was rich, but we don't keep any horses now, except Ellen Tree,' added Amy, laughing. "'Tell me about Ellen Tree. Is it a donkey?' asked Grace, curiously. "'Why, you see, Joe is crazy about horses, and so am I. "'But we've only got an old side-saddle and no horse. "'Out in our garden is an apple tree that has a nice low branch. "'So Joe put the saddle on it, fixed some reins on the part that turns up, "'and we bounce away on Ellen Tree whenever we like.' "'How funny!' laughed Grace. "'I have a pony at home.' and ride nearly every day in the park with Fred and Kate. It's very nice, for my friends go too, and the row is full of ladies and gentlemen. Dear, how charming! I hope I shall go abroad some day, but I'd rather go to Rome than the row, said Amy, who had not the remotest idea what the row was, and wouldn't have asked for the world. Frank, sitting just behind the little girls, heard what they were saying, and pushed his crutch away from him with an impatient gesture as he watched the active lads going through all sorts of comical gymnastics. Beth, who was collecting the scattered author cards, looked up and said, in her shy yet friendly way, I'm afraid you are tired. Can I do anything for you? Talk to me, please. It's dull sitting by myself, answered Frank, who had evidently been used to being made much of at home. If he asked her to deliver a Latin oration, it would not have seemed a more impossible task to bashful Beth. But there was no place to run to, no Joe to hide behind now, and the poor boy looked so wistfully at her that she bravely resolved to try. "'What do you like to talk about?' she asked, fumbling over the cards and dropping half as she tried to tie them up. "'Well?' I like to hear about cricket and boating and hunting, said Frank, who had not yet learned to suit his amusements to his strength. My heart, what shall I do? I don't know anything about them, thought Beth. And forgetting the boy's misfortune in her flurry, she said, hoping to make him talk, I never saw any hunting, but I suppose you know all about it. I did once, but I can never hunt again for I got hurt leaping a confounded five-barred gate, so there are no more horses and hounds for me, said Frank with a sigh that made Beth hate herself for her innocent blunder. Your deer are much prettier than our ugly buffaloes, she said, turning to the prairies for help, and feeling glad that she had read one of the boy's books in which Joe delighted. Buffaloes proved soothing and satisfactory, and in her eagerness to amuse another, Beth forgot herself, and was quite unconscious of her sister's surprise and delight at the unusual spectacle 
of Beth talking away to one of the dreadful boys against whom she had begged protection. Bless her heart. She pities him, so she is good to him, said Joe, beaming at her from the croquet ground. I always said she was a little saint, added Meg, as if there could be no further doubt of it. I haven't heard Frank laugh so much for ever so long, said Grace to Amy, as they sat discussing dolls and making tea sets out of the acorn cups. My sister Beth is a very fastidious girl when she likes to be, said Amy, well pleased at Beth's success. She meant fascinating, but as Grace didn't know the exact meaning of either word, fastidious sounded well and made a good impression. An impromptu circus, fox and geese, and an amicable game of croquet finished the afternoon. At sunset, the tent was struck, hampers packed, wickets pulled up, boats loaded, and the whole party floated down the river, singing at the tops of their voices. Ned, getting sentimental, warbled a serenade with the pensive refrain, Alone, alone, ah, woe, alone, and at the lines, We each are young, we each have a heart, Oh, why should we stand this coldly apart? He looked at Meg with such a lackadaisical expression that she laughed outright and spoiled his song. How can you be so cruel to me, he whispered under cover of a lively chorus. You've kept close to that starched-up Englishwoman all day, and now you snub me. I didn't mean to, but you look so funny I really couldn't help it, replied Meg, passing over the first part of his reproach. For it was quite true that she had shunned him, remembering the Moffat party and the talk after it. Ned was offended and turned to Sally for consolation, saying to her rather pettishly, There isn't a bit of flirt in that girl, is there? Not a particle, but she's a dear, returned Sally, defending her friend even while confessing her shortcomings. She's not a stricken dear, anyway, said Ned, trying to be witty and succeeding as well as a very young gentleman usually do. On the lawn where it had gathered, the little party separated with cordial good-nights and good-byes, for the Vaughns were going to Canada. As the four sisters went home through the garden, Miss Kate looked after them, saying, without the patronizing tone in her voice, In spite of their demonstrative manners, American girls are very nice when one knows them. I quite agree with you, said Mr. Brooke. End of chapter 12 And we're able to end on a happy note. That is not always true for little women. Some chapters are not going to end on a happy note. This one is not going to end on such a happy note for me because I am now starting to feel the malaise that struck my child today that had me running him to the urgent care center to see if he had meningitis, which he doesn't. He just has a virus, which I think I now have. God willing, I will be back with you next week before I head out to New York for my uh, grandmother-in-law's service, memorial service. We are dedicating a bench to her in Central Park. This is Vera, who I spoke of a year ago. Have a great week. I hope I survive mine and talk to you soon. Take care. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlet. Please go to Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and thegoldengatefiberinstitute.org.
can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, blogspot, B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T. Or at craftlit.libsyn.com. Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And don't forget, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>